We're not starting a third service. That's all I'm saying. So if you can, make, make it to third or second. Whoops, I just said third. Uh, make it to second. Um, that would be really helpful. Um, second is fairly full as well, but there is a little bit more room there. So if you could do that, that would be really, really helpful. Um, on Wednesday night, this last Wednesday night, we had a prayer and vision night. Now, if you serve in any capacity at the church, uh, whether it's in small groups or greeting or children's ministry or whatever you do, um, and you could not make it, would you please email me? Email's on the website, um, and I will give you the link to download what we talked about. It's very important on the vision of this next year, where we, where we went from starting to now, and then where we're going in the future. Very important. Um, so please email me if you serve or are interested in serving in any capacity, and we're not there on Wednesday night. Please email me, and I can give you the link to that um, audio. Um, a really quick book recommendation today, we're going to be talking about uh, temptation, and, I, and I'm not going to be able to unpack it as much as I want to this morning, so I want to recommend a book to you, just for some light reading, <laughs> Overcoming Sin and Temptation. <laughs> this book on your nightstand is sure to, no, um, you should read this book. Uh, it's downstairs, uh, I, I highly recommend that you, that you read it. I'm, uh, can I free you from something? Every book that, well, maybe in college, don't, if you're a college student, don't listen to me, but everyone else, you don't have to read a book cover to cover, okay? Um, there are certain chapters that you can go to that you, you might just need that at that very moment. You can go to it, and these things can be a tool for you. Um, I know some people read really fast. I'm not one of those people. I love to read. I'm a very slow reader. So I'll read sections of books, put it down, read it again, put it down, and that sort of thing. This is one of the books that um, I'll read from time to time, jumping into different sections. So I recommend that this is added to your bookshelf because, again, I can't exhaustively talk about overcoming sin and temptation this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9. If you do not, they are in the back as well. You can grab one. And the ones that are in the back, you can take home for free if you'd like, if you need. Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, verses 42 through 50 this morning. The title of today's message, sermon, whatever, is Hell and Temptation. And I want to make a really quick disclaimer. I really want to take away the sting of this passage I'm about to read. But I cannot... I cannot take this sting away. When I read it, it stings. It's meant to sting. And if what I'm going to read offends you, let me please ask you just to stay and hear what Jesus is saying here. Because it might be way better than you think, or it might be much worse than you think. But just listen and hear out what Jesus is saying here. Verse 42 through 50, let's read. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and been thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's our text. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, I thank you that, um, that you cannot be defined by our vocabulary. Our vocabulary is very limited. Almost to where when we begin to describe who you are, it seems like contradictions. I know, I know that there are some of us here that cannot reconcile that you are a God of love, but that there is a real hell. And I pray that you would help us. I ask God um, for those that that, don't, that follow you, that are invited here by a friend or something, or they might be spiritually seeking, just exploring. I pray this morning that they would leave and they would understand what great lengths you've gone to rescue us. I pray for those that do follow you. I know that you save your most harsh words sometimes for those who follow you and say they follow you but cause others to sin. They themselves run to sin often. And I pray today that for those that do follow you, you would purify your church today. And I say all of this humbly, Lord, knowing, God, that I'm not worthy to be up here and to be saying these things. And so um, I approach this text with holy reverence. Would you help me in Jesus' name? Amen. Now, as I read that, this text stings a bit. When I read that, I heard a couple of gasps, like, oh, like, oh my gosh. Wait, cut off your hand or go to hell? I mean, those aren't really two good options. I mean, either cut off your hand, I don't want that one, and like, or go to hell, I don't want that either. Like, is there a middle where I could keep both hands and like not go to hell? Is there any way to do that? Can I have option C, please? And when you read that, there's something a bit striking and shocking about this. This is one of those texts that I would avoid, that maybe some of us would avoid if you want to remain, remain politically correct. And please know that I didn't choose this text going, what do I want to talk about today? Oh, hell and temptation. That would be fun. It was more, this is where we're at in this text. And this is where we're at as we're going through the book of Mark, looking at the story and the life of Jesus. And even when we try to reconcile this in our own brains, maybe as I read this, a lot of us, we're trying to reconcile, like, okay, what does that mean? How do I reconcile these things? And this is how how we reconciled it. Well, that can't be literal. There's no way that that section and what Jesus was teaching was literal. Surely Jesus is not advocating self mutilation. I mean, to literally chop off your hand or pluck out your eye or lop off your foot, there's no way that Jesus is talking about that. And certainly Jesus is not saying that there is such a place as hell where there's a a literal place that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's all metaphor and hyperbole and fable, right? Well, yes and no. I want to ask these three questions from the text this morning in this teaching of Jesus, and they are this. What is hell? What does hell have to do with temptation? And what does Jesus show us about, what does hell show us about Jesus? What is hell, what does hell have to do with temptation, and what does hell show us about Jesus? I will try, I've tried to add comedy relief, but there's really none. I'm just going to let you guys know that right now. I mean, I'm like, I need to say something funny here, because this is pretty tense. I'm like, I got nothing. I could try to be funny, but it probably won't work. 
first off, what is, what is hell? C.S. Lewis, um, who before he was a Christian was a very intellectual atheist, he became a Christian and became a very intellectual Christian. Looking back on his life as an atheist, he once said that he maintained that God did not exist, he said. And he also said, and I was also very angry with God for not existing. And he says, I, like many atheists, were a world of contradictions. In the chapter simply entitled Hell in his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes this. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. Now I think that many of us, we might echo C.S. Lewis's reservations here. That if we can get rid of anything in the Bible or anything that the church teaches, it would be the doctrine of hell. One research group found that 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die, but less than 1% think that they are going to go to hell. And I don't think maybe in our, even in our own lives we give too much thought about hell. I would even wager and bet that we might go as far as to believe and to say that the doctrine of hell damages the reputation of a loving God. Like, if there is such a thing as hell, I don't want to talk about it because it really damages this reputation that we have that God is love. So we avoid the subject matter altogether. So we're like, we're just not even going to go there. Let me ask you a question, though. Think about this. Who is the most loving, compassionate, humble figure in the Bible? Was it not Jesus who healed the sick and preached the gospel to the poor, who liberated the oppressed and had compassion on those in need and broke long-held social taboos, who did all of these things, was the great liberator. Nevertheless, Jesus speaks more of the eternal fire and punishment of hell for those who have rejected God than any other Bible characters put, to the, put together. All of them put together. Jesus speaks more about hell. To put it plainly, Jesus believed in hell. He talked about it more than he talked about heaven, marriage, the Holy Spirit, or the church. So you might be one of those that would love to wipe this doctrine off the face of the earth. But a serious problem emerges when you and I begin to do that. If we're like, well, let's just get rid of this doctrine of hell, there is no hell. Let's just, let's just go there. There's a problem that emerges. One of my wife and I, are, one of our favorite shows to watch on television is Modern Family. And if you've seen this, this show, I can't get into why it's so funny, but it's just, just trust me, it's pretty funny. If you have a sense of humor, it's funny. Um, <laughs> there's this little boy in it, his name is Manny, he's like this 11-year-old Colombian kid who's this old soul who drinks espresso all day and like reads romantic literature and all this stuff, and, and it, he just, he's just a hopeless romantic and he's just really cute and funny. And his, his stepdad is, is Jay, played by the famous, you know, Al Bundy. And this specific episode, they ditch church to go golfing. Now, Jay hates church, okay? He hates going to church, but his, his wife makes him go to church. Manny likes to go to church, but Dan, he's kind of getting this rebellious. He's almost, he's a preteen. He's getting kind of rebellious. He's like, you know what? I'm not going to go to church today, Mom. I'm going to go with Jay golfing because Jay likes to explore God and nature. So I'm going to go golfing with him. So they go, and they go golfing, and when they're golfing, Manny starts, starts feeling guilty about it. He's like, he gets, he's just walking, and he's like, he's always thinking about everything. So he's thinking, and he goes, Jay, aren't you, aren't you nervous? It's like, about what? He goes, 
you know, about, about hell. Like, because if you skip church, you're going to go to hell. That's what he was thinking. It's like, aren't you nervous about hell? And then Jay was like, let me, let me let you in on a little secret. There's no such thing as hell. And Manny's face lights up. Really? That's terrific, awesome, fantastic news. So we're all going to heaven. And Jay's like, yeah, end of story, done. So then Manny starts thinking, even bad people? And he's like, yeah, 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 bad people too, but, but they have a, a section. They're in another section of, of heaven. <laughs> like they have this whole thing figured out. And Manny's like, okay. So he's thinking a little bit more and he's contemplating. He's like, Jay, I'm just trying to think about this heaven of yours that's filled with bad people. He's like, no, 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 no. It's, they're, they're not, it's just the smallest fraction of bad people, but they're all walled in. He's like, they're all walled in. What, what if they break out? And he goes, they, they can't break out. See, they're surrounded by a lake of fire. <laughs> and Manny's like, there's lakes of fire in heaven? This sounds like hell. <laughs> See, there's this problem when you start to do that in your own mind. Like, what do we do with evil? What do we do with bad people? What happens with all of, all of the gross, horrible things that happen in our world today and has happened through the centuries? Even what the church has done, what happens there? When is there going to be justice? When will justice be honored? When will all things be put back to right? When will evil be stamped out and true justice brought into humanity? Like, okay, I get it. I'm all for wrongs being right and all counts finally being settled. I'm all for justice. I'm all for the fight against evil. But you're talking about God sending people to hell. Where's the love in that? Because in our own minds, we're like, hey, wait, eternal punishment for not believing God doesn't seem like the punishment matches the crime. So let's back to our, get back to our question. What is hell? Here, Jesus uses a metaphor in verse 48. He says that those who do not deal decisively with sin will be thrown into hell, and then he gives a description, a metaphor, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus gives another metaphor for hell. He says that they're absent from the presence of God, or the servant is absent from his master into, quote, outer darkness. That's what Jesus used to describe hell. See, when Jesus uses metaphor, it's always to point to a greater reality. That's why metaphor is used in the Bible. That's why you and I use metaphor. The word Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna. It's this, it was a literal place. It was a valley near Jerusalem where piles of trash and garbage were daily burned and corpse, corpses of fam, a family uh, with people with no family were sent to be buried and rot because they didn't have a family to bury them, to give them a proper burial. So they took them to Gehenna and dumped them in the trash and there, there their bodies would rot, possibly catch on fire. So Gehenna, this literal place, which was a physical location of smoldering rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem became a euphemism for the final state of those who have rebelled against God. Tim Keller, in an article, The Importance of Hell, which I will make available to you guys later this week, unless you already have it, um, I'll actually be giving you guys a lot of different resources for this topic that you guys could read for yourselves. But in this article that he writes about the importance of hell, he has a good interpretation about this verse. He says this, quote, Jesus speaks of a, of a person going to hell, Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is referring to the maggots, 
that live in the corpses on the garbage heap. When all the flesh is consumed, the maggots die. Jesus is saying, however, that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends. And that is why their worm does not die. See, when we say that Jesus was using metaphor to describe hell, to be honest, that's not very comforting. It's not like, oh, well, that's a metaphor. The, the fact is this, the reality is far worse than the metaphor. When Jesus says that hell is a place of eternal fire and outer darkness, these are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. This is what Jesus is saying here. When he says, you will be cast out to outer darkness or a fire that never ever ceases or a worm that never ever dies, he's using that to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation. Fire refers to the destruction of being separated from God, away from the presence and the favor of God. You and I will quite literally, horrifically and endlessly fall apart. The Bible teaches that God holds all things together. Everything in your life, every good thing. I was just talking to somebody this morning about babies, about pregnant moms. Everybody, everybody can experience or can be a part of experiencing that joy. That joy is not reserved for people who love God. The sunrise or the sunset or a good meal or the joy of friendship or the joy of love or intimacy can be enjoyed by people who love God or do not. It's common grace. God holds all things together. And what Jesus describes hell as being is when God pulls, when you get separated from God, and all of that is gone. And it's described by outer darkness, a fire that does not cease, and a worm that does not die. Jesus is saying that the worst thing to happen to a human soul is to be away from God. That is the worst thing that can happen to a human soul, away from his presence, away from his provision. Now, why would Jesus say this? This is huge. Because we were made in the image of God, and we were created to be sustained by him, to know him, and to enjoy God forever. So Jesus used the most vivid imagery when he talked about hell, the most vivid. But I don't think we have to focus too much, or we should focus too much on the literal imagery of hell, any more than we focus on the imagery of heaven. You see, when you talk about heaven, what makes heaven so great is not that the streets are paved with gold or there's pearly gates. I don't, I mean, when you talk about heaven, what's the greatest thing in heaven? Oh, I can't wait till the streets are gold. They're gonna probably be way smoother than the streets here. I cannot wait. It's gonna be awesome. And then pearly gates, that's not why heaven's so great. Heaven is so great because God is there that the glory of God lights up heaven, that there's no sun or moon or, or need for it at all, and there's no shadow at all because God's glory lights heaven. That's what makes heaven so great. In the same way, it's not the big worm or the hot fire that makes hell so bad. It's the fact that God is not there. And this is what Jesus is getting at with hell. I want you to shift your thinking to a more biblical understanding that it's not like, okay, I, I prepared this place for people who don't believe all the right things, and I cannot wait to send them there. It's hot, and there's fire, but it's dark. <laughs> and when I send you there, you're not gonna like it. That's not a biblical description of hell. It is the absence of God. And a biblical description of heaven isn't you on a cloud with a harp. 
the biblical description of heaven is you will always be with the Lord. That's the, that's the best description I can give you of heaven. What is heaven? You will always be in the presence of God, always. The way that your soul, your life was created for and what it was created for, it will be there forever for all eternity. What is hell? Absence from God for all eternity. So what is hell then? Hell is a soul eternally separated from God in his sovereign control. Hell is a soul eternally separated from God in his sovereign control. Notice, notice how he phrased that. God's sovereign control. His control. Think about the word control for a second. Some of us hate that word. I say his control, you're like, uh, control? What do you mean control? I don't want God to control me. Bingo. That's exactly what hell is. The desire of every sinful human heart is for independence. The desire of our sinful human hearts is I don't want God to control me. I don't want anyone to control me. I want to control myself. I want to do what I want to do. I need total independence. And I need independence from God. That's why C.S. Lewis writes, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. This is what that means. It's not really a question about God sending us to hell, like he made this place so horrible that he can't wait to send us to, as if he's some mean divine figure who because we didn't believe all the right things, he sends us to hell happily. Rather, there's something inside of us the self-centered pride and evil and self-absorption within, which will be hell unless we deal with it. If we keep rejecting and rejecting and rejecting God and wanting independence and wanting more and more independence and wanting independence from God, that door will be closed. You will have your independence from him forever. Romans 1 and 2 explain that God in his wrath against those who reject him, you're like, wait, God has wrath? Every loving creature has wrath. Ask any parent. If you love someone enough, you get angry when someone is destroying them. And you have wrath. God is the most perfect loving being, and he has wrath. Romans 1 and 2 explain that God in his wrath against those who reject him, he gives them up, quote, gives them up to their sinful passions of their hearts. He gives them up. He gives them over to them. You want that? You want independence in the passion of your hearts? Here, you can have it. He gives us our independence, our freedom from himself for all eternity. The absence of God is the absence of light, and we're sent into outer darkness where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Concise Theology, Scripture's see hell as self-chosen. It appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. That's hell. So if that's hell, what does hell have to do with temptation then? If that's hell, if that's a picture of hell, absolute absence from God, for all eternity, where the door is shut. What does hell now have to do with temptation? The way Jesus teaches on the seriousness of temptation and sin is by using the reality of hell. 
So what does hell have to do with temptation? What Jesus says in Mark 9 is that if you do not kill your sin and the sin in your own life, sin will eventually kill you and you will find yourself exposed to the flames of hell and separation from God forever. Jesus uses one of my favorite rhetorical devices to do this, hyperbole, which I use all the time in my marriage and doesn't really go over that well. Like, you exaggerate. Well, Jesus did it all the time, and I just want to be like him, and so I'm going to do that. He says this, if you cause a vulnerable little one to sin, if you exploit and ruin another life, it's better if you grabbed a large stone, and you wrapped it around your neck, and you jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into life, into life with one hand than hell with two. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, of course, this is not to be taken literally. This is hyperbole, using exaggeration to make a point. Now, I might be very, very twisted, and I think I am, but I kind of see this as a bit of dark humor. When I read this, I kind of want to chuckle because I'm really messed up. But I read this, it's a little bit of dark humor. He's like, okay, you, you like your hands? Yeah, they'll do you really good in hell. Two hands in hell is really, really good. So keep your hands. You're going to hell. Or do you like your eyes and your feet? They'll run you right into hell. So you like that? Those, those hands good for you? Those feet good for you? Those eyes good for you? Great. They'll do wonderful. They'll work well in hell. We use the same sort of exaggeration, this hyperbole, when we say things like, I would give my left foot for that car. Now, your friends aren't going, literally? Ooh, that's gross. You're weird. Why would you want to give your left foot? No, it's hyperbole. I'm saying I really want that car. Or I would give my right hand for that apartment. Because living life with one hand and having that apartment is better than having two hands in my current apartment. That's what I'm saying. And this is, and that's hyperbole. I mean, no one expects you to like, okay, I want, you actually want your hand, you can have my apartment. It's hyperbole. Here, Jesus' point, using this exaggeration, is to ask this question. How much do you value the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God worth to you? Do you value Jesus and deem him more important than even those things which are the most indispensable in your life? Like, I can't live without this. Is Jesus worth more than that? Is the kingdom of God worth more than that to you? Jesus does this sort of thing all the time. Where he talks about, in comparison to loving God, you have to hate everyone else. You're like, wait, I thought that contradicts loving everyone. Yes, but in your comparison to loving God. Do you love God more than anything? Is the kingdom of God all-consuming in your life? Would you give up anything or go anywhere or do anything for the kingdom of God and the love of God and his mission on this earth? Jesus isn't calling for self-mutilation here. He's calling for spiritual mortification. And here's what I mean. The eye means this, what we view, the hand means where we, what we do, and the feet where we go. Let me repeat that. Eye is what we, what we view, hand is what we do, and feet where we go. If what you're viewing and what you're doing or where you're going is keeping you from the kingdom of God and experiencing and knowing Jesus and leading you into sin, Jesus issues a very, very strong warning here about the power of temptation and the deceitfulness of sin. See, you're not responsible necessarily for what you're tempted with. 
You're not responsible for what you're tempted with. All of us in here are tempted in similar ways and different ways. Depending on where you work, your line of work, where you live, how much money you have, how much money you don't have, if you're single or married, all of us have certain temptations. Who we're attracted to, who we're not attracted to, and we have a set of temptations and vices, and some of us, we have the same ones, some of us, we have different ones. See, we're not responsible for the fact that we are tempted in this way. What we are responsible for is what we do with our temptations. What do you do with them? Jesus is saying here that there can be no compromise at all. We must deal with sin in our lives. If something is causing us to sin, if something is leading you into temptation, we must. That's why he says it's your foot, cut off your foot, your hand, your eye. You must deal decisively with your sin. You must deal with it, and it will hurt. See, you and I have this proclivity to find our identity in sin. Our sin, our temptations, and our vices tend to define who we are. Someone I love very, very deeply right now is in a 12-step program. And I was talking on the phone with them yesterday. And then they were describing how the, the meetings go, and everyone stands up. You're probably very familiar with this. Stand up and say, Hello, my name is so-and-so, and I am a alcoholic. I'm a abuser. I drug user, whatever, and you fill in the blank. And this person said yesterday the craziest thing happened at their last meeting is someone stood up and said, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a child of God. And it was like, like a paradigm shift. See, I understand the importance of recognizing your faults and your sin and never forgetting what you're capable of and recognizing you have a problem, but there is a point in which God shifts your identity and gives you a new identity where you no longer like, hi, my name is so-and-so and I've been abused. Hi, my name is so-and-so and I've been this. Hi, my name is so-and-so and I struggle with this. It's hi, my name is, and I'm a child of God. But to do that, to get to that place, Jesus says very literally here, it's like a part of us will die. Again, J.I. Packer. How do we by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? This is too hard. Pain and grief, moans and groans will certainly be involved. For your sin does not want to die, nor will it enjoy the killing process. Jesus told us very vividly that mortifying a sin could well feel like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand, or a foot. In other words, self-mutilation. You will, feel, you will feel you are saying goodbye to something that is so much a part of you that without it you cannot live. Jesus assures us that the exercise, however painful, is necessary for life. We must go to it. What Jesus asks here, using dark humor and hyperbole, is what is more valuable to you, your sin or the presence of God? What do you value more, your sin or the presence of God? Now, this might sound a bit tiresome. You're like, okay, you told me that I have to fight sin to get into the kingdom of God, 
or I have to fight against God to get into hell. That sounds like I'm doing all this stuff and God's this uninterested party. That's not so. Our last point, what does hell show us about Jesus? What Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 9 is that there is no physical destruction that can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell. There's nothing physical that you can lose that compares to being separated from God forever. But this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was physically crucified. His body broke, tore apart, blood spilt. He was spiritually separated from the Father. He had, etern- he had separation from the Father. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why, has, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing hell itself. Actually, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the greatest test and temptation of Jesus' life was to ditch the cross. But he fought. And he fought that temptation. And he went to the cross for us. And I believe it's not until you come to realize how bad hell is, the horror of being separated from God, that you begin to realize what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Later in that same book, The Problem of Pain, in the chapter called Hell, C.S. Lewis says this. I say glibly, I have no idea what that word means. (laughs) I think it says, I don't know. A moment ago, and no one talks like that, a moment ago that I would pay any price to remove this doctrine of hell. I lied. I cannot pay one thousandth part of the price that God has already paid to remove the fact. Jesus had unbroken relationship with the Father. He came to take our place, died for our sin, he died our death, he was separated from God the Father, he took on hell itself. See, and it's not being good, it's not about being good enough, saying all the right things. It's not like, okay, if I'm good enough and I keep fighting sin enough, then I get in. No. See, that sort of thing breeds pride. Like, I'm, I'm way better than you. Look at how, 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 how together my life is. That breeds pride, which again, just shows that the sin is way deeper than you think. It's not about doing all the right things. It's not about saying all the right things. It's about recognizing what another has done on your behalf. It's recognizing and realizing what Christ has done on the cross for us. Jesus came to save us from the reality of hell and the power of sin and temptation. And the only way our hearts are freed to actually start to fight our own sin with the power of God and the Holy Spirit is by understanding that he's done it all already. That he's experienced separation so that we can have life. That Christ was crucified. His body was maimed. That you and I can have life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you experienced hell 
that you took on death, that you had broken fellowship and relationship with God the Father. And Lord, we would be lying to think that whether we follow you or not, that hell is a scary place. And the reality of it, maybe even just the smell of it would destroy us. But we thank you, God, that by understanding how horrible hell is, we see how much you love us. That you would go through that, that you would experience hell itself, that we can have life. I pray for those that follow you in here, those in here who are wrestling with some vice, some sin, I pray, God, that you would shift, Lord, their identity to have a new identity. Their identity is in you, that you wash them, cleanse them as they repent, as they turn from their sin to you. I pray that most of us would heed a really strong warning from this text and the sting of it would draw us closer to you and we would be more in love with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.